everybody. This is Tumble Vision. Welcome to episode 95. We've been doing this a while with David Weinberger this week, author of the longest title of a book you've ever heard of, and this and super smart thinker about the net and how it's affected how we think and knowledge in general. I'm Heather Gold, your host, along with First while other hosts, Kevin Marks here in San Francisco with me. Hi there. And Deb Schultz, also in San Francisco. Indeed, across town waving to you. And uh, tonight we're going to dig into David uh, and his book, Too Big to Know, uh, and ideas about, you know, information overload. And if there are questions you want us to get into, you can join us live as always Thursday nights at 6 p.m. PST at tumblevision.tv. There's a live section there. You can come into the chat room and let us know what you want to talk about and respond and ask questions. I want to thank right off the top our sponsor, our founding sponsor, Hover. And two cows up in Canada, Hover's domains made simple. If you need to register a domain, or maybe transfer yours away from a really annoying domain hoster run by somebody who likes to shoot elephants and brag about it. You have an option. Not only do you have an option, you can get a deal, 10% off. Just use the code TUMMEL, T-O-M-M-E-L. It'll be a little bit of a kickback to us if you want to help support this show. If you want to help support the show anyway, you can donate to us, nosh at, uh, at subvert.com at PayPal. And we got to get donations up. And we'll get on with the show this week. I'm really excited to have with us uh, David Weinberger, maybe my favorite thinker about the web, certainly one of them. And it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, do you get you get described a lot to people, David, as a thinker, as a career? Like, what do you do? He's a thinker. Um, sometimes, I don't know, I guess. No, not, not really. Um, and if I get described as a philosopher, then I have to spend 15 minutes explaining why I have no right to that title, never did, and um, I reject it roundly. Excellent. Reject it. Philosopher, don't want guru. What do you, is there anything you want? <laughs> yeah, how would you like to be described, David? Uh, um, it took till I was 50 before I was willing to say that I'm a writer, but now I'm willing to say I, I'm a writer. You've published a few books, man. Yeah, when I was around 50. <laughs> well, you know what? There's hope there for go. me. You give me hope. <laughs> the sunset years have been have been very good to me. I'm glad to you hear that. Ooh, the sunset years. Ew. Oh yeah. Okay. So when so your early years were started where you live now uh, somewhere like Brookline. I'm going to guess near Harvard. Is it, you is it that obvious? Is, not, is, is the stereotype <laughs> so easy? I yes, I live in Brookline. the Rugula from here. <laughs> <laughs> I usually say that we live in North Brookline, which is a signal to true Bostonians that I'm rejecting the, the class designation that usually comes with Brookline. We're in sort of the uh-huh. student area of, of, of Brookline. So where'd you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Now somebody says, oh, Long Island. Go ahead. You want to do it? Go ahead. No, I, I don't. I just suffered through living there for three years. Where were, where were you in Long Island? It's the same thing. I'm, I'm in Rouselton Heights, which is very different from Rouselton. Rouselton Heights was a track yes. development done by the same guy who did Levittown. If, if you yes. Know that. As someone so. who was born in Plainview, I can relate. There you go. Which is right okay. next door to Rosalind. See, you grew up in Longview. Uh, I'm sorry. In was it Longview? What did you, no, in, in Rosalind Heights. Rosalind Heights, Long Island. And where where did you go from there? Oh my God! Um, so, uh, do you remember? Has it been so long? <laughs> I stayed there till I was eighteen. I went to. Um, I'll, I'll just do the whole thing. We'll get it out of the way. It's incredibly boring. No, uh, no, no. Oh, no. it is. Believe Slow me. Down. 
I went to Bucknell in the middle of Pennsylvania. I went to uh, University of Toronto for seven years, uh, grad school, where well, I... How was it to live in Canada? Oh, fantastic. It was it was the Vietnam years, so it was especially... The Nixon years, it was especially lovely. But you weren't tempted to stay? I was tempted to stay, but um, I got a, a one-year job teaching. When um, did you get your first computer? Um, 19... Oh, geez, let's see. So I got it to type my wife's dissertation. Uh, so it was like 1982. It was a K-Pro. And by then, were you back in the States? Uh, yes. We were, living in, um, we were living in New Jersey, just south of Atlantic City, where I had a five-year teaching run before I ran into the tenure wall. It was a non-tenure position, basically. Ah, uh, uh, uh. So you're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. No, and I had always, I had always uh, really disliked computers. Didn't trust them. It was uh, I was I was humanities major, and uh, in, I graduated in '72 from college. And so back then, it was all um, it was all cards, you know, it was punch cards. Um, and I was uh, I, d- I didn't like them very much. So they, they actually, in many ways, were not all that. I, they were doing things I didn't care about. You know, important things I didn't care about what they were doing. Um, I got my first computer, and I've been writing about oh, sort of technology. I was writing about it. I was a freelance writer throughout this entire period, and I was writing about um, anything that was that I could sell, basically, which was either humor or it was explaining uh, difficult concepts that um, sort of on the intellectual side and science side, even though I have no science background. Um, so I had been writing about technology, and, and the, so I was sort of primed for this. And the very first time that I saw a modern computer, which was a CPM, it was actually a Xerox uh, computer, but uh, I immediately not only um, felt, you could practically hear my heart go twang. It was, it was ridiculous. It was like love at first sight. And I immediately, as soon as my K-Pro arrived and I unboxed it and I typed my first uh, first things on the keyboard, saw, saw them come up on the screen. I wanted to know how they worked. I had a sort of deep atavistic urge to know how pressing a, a key caused a font to appear on the screen. And, I and don't know why. What did you care about before? So you're saying you didn't care about this thing. You were getting paid for humor. You wrote some jokes for Woody Allen's comic strip, and you did this kind of science explaining stuff. But if you were left to your own devices and your own time, what, what did you care about? What did you really want to think about and Make work about. Uh, so, do you do? Do do? Yeah, I, so you know, it, it depends when you're asking. So, I, I went through a philosophy career where I really like teaching and I like the history of philosophy because I have uh, an interest in. Uh, it's always felt sort of archaeological to me, in which you discover um, through look through the history of ideas. Uh, the, that the things that you take for granted that seem so obvious, sort of the glasses through which you see, the concepts through which you see, all have histories and are, to one degree or another, arbitrary. You know, there, there are other views possible. So it's sort of like a self-anthropology, an anthropology of your own culture um, that looks only at the progress of ideas and acts as if ideas evolve independent of everything else, which is a deep mistake that I and, and many other people in the philosophy biz make. Nevertheless, that was really, really interesting to me. That's a great phrase, the philosophy biz. Yeah, it's I not mean, a great, great biz. But it's not far away from, from comedy. I mean, I'm a comic, and comedy is, you know, half anthropology, half philosophy, pretty much a lot of the it's time. A, it's all timing. It's the same. I think it's exactly the same thing. It's a su- sudden revelation of truth, and um, I'm, uh, you do it faster than, than philosophers do. Philosophers try to squeeze attention. all the enjoyment out of it. 
that's what you pay attention to, I guess. And making it personal. I mean, when, I don't know, all the philosophy I was reading in school was pretty abstracted out. Usually comedically, you're trying to be specific and direct to people as you can be. Yeah, well, no, that's a really good point. Um, I, I was never... I, I always swerved around as much as I could, sort of 20th century analytic philosophy where you analyze, pick things apart um, forever. Although it's actually the case the analytic philosophers frequently have a very good sense of humor and the people that I was reading in the history of philosophy, they're not noted generally for their for the yucks, um, not quite as witty and, and supple as uh, many of the modern um, analytic philosophers who, who I, I didn't think, I didn't like their approach, but... You know, Wittgenstein's pretty funny. And when, when people would say things to you, like, you know, there's nothing practical about what you do. I mean, did, did you get that in those days? Like, yeah, wow. sure. And how did yeah. you feel about that? What was your kind of response? Or it, Yeah, I'm like the luckiest man in the world. I, talk, I do something that doesn't have to have a practical outcome. It's a real luxury. And you just agree with them? It's hard to argue with them. Yeah, no, I would agree with them. I, I I agree with that. I think that's that's one of the nice things about a culture that has, uh, you know, cognitive surplus, as uh, some guy once said, Clay Shirky. When in doubt, it's almost always Clay Shirky who said it. So pretty much suppress that. Um, it's really nice to be in a culture that has uh, enough um, cycles and affluence that a class of people are allowed to um, pursue interest without regard to practicality i mean that's that's you don't get a lot of culture unless you have that so i'm i'm fine with that <laughs> you're like yeah that's yeah it was the greatest great. thing ever it's kind of the thing i learned to say to people would yell at me out of the car fucking dyke i'm like yes that's right <laughs> okay that's it that's kind of the end of the the acquisition. So you know, when yeah. they're right, they're right, Heather. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. No it's just really argument. nice because you can't really argue. The argument's sort of over. It's very hard for people to be attacking you, and you're like, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I'm not fucking at the moment, but you know, the rest of it's pretty much right. So <laughs> I, know. I know. There's always an assumption. We just get it all day long. It's just being thrown at us. Uh, and by the way, the the fuck barrier was broken about 21 minutes into this conversation. So well done. Yeah, well, we pr- we pride ourselves in being the explicit business podcast on iTunes. <laughs> uh, so because that's what it's about. It's a kind of absurdity, isn't it? I mean, it's, business yes. is sort of odd because in private, the, the, everyone's so product tough. Guys, I feel like they're in the trenches, being nasty, dirty. When I mean, at least they don't hear women usually treated with that attitude. But then in public, they're all like, I'm very serious, I have a tie on, it's like I'm talking to my grandmother. So, David, you've written all these books, now you acknowledge yourself as a writer, and you became into the computer the second you had it, which is kind of interesting for, I'm interested in abstract, non-reality, I don't have to produce anything practical, and then you had this tangible thing, and you, to you, a computer, I guess, is tangible. Uh, yeah. No, I was interested in it all the way down the stack, so to speak, to um, how the circuits got closed, how the little lights lit up on the screen. I never got very good at it, but I was very, very interested in it. Can I ask you a question on that? Were you, was it the first mechanical device that you were interested in that way? Or were you always, were you the kind of kid who took apart the toy, I don't know, cars and whatever? Because it sounds like it was a big aha. You opened up the computer... Uh, and there was something oh. about it, no? Or I, I did my share of taking things apart. I just oh, never okay. put them. To, I could never put them together, which I think is really the mark of the mechanically minded. Yes, <laughs> reverse engineering and then re-engineering. 
it's pretty important when, yeah, when it's your, something of your parents, for example, that you've taken apart. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you, all of your writing is pretty much um, connecting to at least since Clue Train is seems to be about the fluidity on some level that we're living in. To me, that's what it seems like. That's what I see it have in common. I don't know how you view it. <laughs> so um, I think that's pretty good. I, that's not exactly – I use a different metaphor, um, but I think it's getting at the, at the same thing. Um, I, I think a lot of what I uh, care about or write about is um, when, when st- uh, firmly fixed structures get busted apart. And put it like this: that we have, you can boil it all down to links for me. That um, I'm really interested in, in what links do, and one of the things that they do is they take, they let structures fall apart into more natural shapes. And even though they're links and so they're connective, they also allow things to become more disconnected, usually in useful ways. And so um, rigid structures that um, result almost always from some form of control that have the benefits of efficiency um, and, uh, and you know, verification and vetting and all those sorts of things that we get from centrally con- controlled mechanisms um, turn out not to scale at all. And I think one of the really surprising revelations, at least to me, and I think to our culture of the net overall, is that if you let things fall apart, they scale up uh, impossibly, like we never even mm-hmm. imagined. Why? Because the trying to hold things together through control mechanisms, those c- control mechanisms are incredibly expensive and difficult. And we're really good at them, and we get so many benefits from them that at least we didn't use to notice um, just all the price that we were paying. But there's an enormous price to trying to control a system. I, I, this is sounds abstract, but it's not at all. I'm, um, it's it's it, not. Talk, no, it's in every whether it's business decision making or it's how scientific information gets published. Trying to do it right by uh, peer review and careful choosing and a few careful outlets, and you can trust what they're saying. All all of which are benefits. Well, most of that is anyway are, are benefits. But the price is that you you can't. It doesn't scale. We thought we had a lot of science. We thought we had a lot of publications. Way too much for anybody to read. Big big libraries full of them. But it turns out it's nowhere near enough. It's not even. It's it's not a fraction of what we need. And the mechanisms that we have for dealing with with this old scarcity of knowledge um, turn out to be have been holding us back. We can do so much more with new mechanisms, new techniques, and with this uh, incredible onrush of very loosely connected um, data, information, knowledge, facts, the whole, the whole schmear. So and, wait a minute. It, there, you, you, things aren't too big to know then? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Oh, jeez. No, the, well, well the thing that's – I'm pretty confident about the title uh, because I know what it refers to. And so it, it, what's too big to know is the world. And the world – yeah, the, the universe, let's say. The universe is too big to know. I'm, I'm not worried about that turning out to be wrong over the next few years. So I, I want to just go back a little bit to the thing you just said. If So we let these things fall apart. We have these new ways of letting things be much looser together, and then they, they scale up much more. But so since you've paid so much attention for so long to how we think and um, 
and the way we think, what is it about the way we used to think that let us get here? Well, so what, what and by that- I mean, if you're listening to this, the assumption that because this show television, we talk about this a lot here is a less centralized, more networked, you know, and we're going to have a much more chaotic life in the West here in coming the next 10 years because of what's happening economically, where information's going, all this sort of thing. So the sense that stuff's all over the place. What do I do? I don't have a clear path in front of me. So how in order to have allowed these things to happen, we would have gotten to. Google to Napster to Wikipedia to any of this stuff to Occupy to any Burning Man, any structure that's kind of open and mushing around more Salesforce, anything that's changing and more social without the way we used to think. So what was it that happened? So I, I, I have a, I have an hypothesis. So I get accused quite correctly of being an optimist, and I prefer to refer to myself as a, as a depressed optimist because I, I fundamentally about this stuff, personally I'm not an optimist, but about this stuff I actually am optimistic, and sometimes that gets in the way of my understanding things, and uh, that's, that's bad. Nevertheless, my optimism is based on the following um, very likely untrue hypothesis. It doesn't feel like a hypothesis to me, it's, but uh, I'm putting it forward as one. Um, it, it feels to me like a naive assumption that I make. Uh, my hypothesis is that we were, throughout the entire broadcast regime, and we don't have to go back any further, just, you know, in the 20th century, we, by which I uh, won't even qualify we, we felt, we knew that something was wrong. We knew that the broadcast media, the news that we were getting in half an hour was wildly inadequate. It was only half an hour. It was focused uh, on a small slice of the world primarily. It was dominated by white men. It was, we knew, and we weren't interested in the whole big chunks of what they were telling us. We probably should have been, but we weren't. And so we knew there was something wrong with the news. And we knew there was something wrong with encyclopedias. Encyclopedias were great because you could go there and get answers. And if somebody challenged you, you could say, no, it was in the Britannica. And you could win the argument. But we knew, we knew that it wasn't quite right. We knew the world didn't squeeze into those 32 volumes and 65,000 entries. And we knew that over time, the entries, the old entries were getting shorter and shorter, that the Oliver Goldsmith article was getting noticeably shorter in each edition because it had to make room for the new stuff. We, we knew that the, I'll put this as optimistically as I possibly can, we knew that the world was way more interesting than anybody was telling us. And so this new structure comes along, that, um, this new infrastructure comes along that allows us to connect with one another, to talk about the things that we care about, to develop new processes for filtering, to explore anything that we wanted to without the stopping points built into the old broadcast and print media. And you can't get from a book to the next book except by actually putting down the book and going somewhere, which seems so archaic now. We had this new fluid, if I may use your word, your new, this new fluid environment, and it felt so much righter to us and made us realize explicitly that we knew all along that the old regime, something was really, we broke the fuck barrier, right? Something was really fucked up about that old regime. Go nuts. We knew fuck, something fuck, was fuck, fucked fuck, up about fuck. it. And yeah, whatever you want to say. So that, that's, what, that's what fundamentally my optimism is based in. It's not based in the idea that everything that happens on the web is good and we're always going to have an open net. And it's not based on uh, ignoring 
the fact that people do horrible things on the net and it plays into some, many, all of our baser, basest desires, including bullying and, and hanging out, you know, echo chambers and get re, get, getting reconfirmed in stupid wrong ideas. That's, I recognize that. But my optimism is based upon the fact that the old regime was fundamentally wrong about what it means to be human. And our new infrastructure is, fundament- is a far better reflection of what it means, of the qualities of human life. Mm. Wow, that's a nice, concise statement. I, yeah. of, of, uh, I, I couldn't agree with it more. I mean, when things are uncomfortable, um, eventually you'd rather be comfortable, you know? It's like coming out. Sorry, I'm not going to gayfy everything you say, but it's the first thing that occurs to me. Like when I when I came out in the mid '80s, it was rationally a bad thing to do. Right? There was no public uh, representation that showed me in any way that the life I could have would be good. It was only like you'll be in prison. Someone might you might kill somebody. Like there was, I couldn't see how to have children. Like there was no example of anything good. But it became. It was so crappy the way it was. It was worth changing. So sometimes even that, I, I, I don't know, I'm a big believer in pain, David, as a useful push towards doing something better, which is interesting because, but I, I usually experience that knowledge of something not working as not an intellectual kind of knowledge. I mean, eventually there's an intellectual description of it, but usually it's more of a felt uh, misery. So how do you deal with that in terms of the notion of knowledge. Does knowledge, in the way that you address it, include not just abstract rational knowledge? You know, in in the book, I use the term disgracefully loosely. I mean, I define it at one point in the classic definition, which is justified true belief, which comes straight out of Plato and is a useful thing, and that's what philosophers mean by it. But by the time I'm talking about it on the net, um, I... I didn't want to confine myself to talking about the sort of knowledge that uh, is only developed within academic and scientific um, domains, although that's, I do talk about those and I think those are important. So I, I'm using it um, uh, far more broadly and I'm not even sure if I can give a consistent definition of it, but uh, something like true statements that matter, you know, that loosely. Ah, so it's not justified true beliefs, but they have to matter too. Well, um, yes. If you want to talk about, um, it, so if you want to, if you, if you want to follow the track of philosophical knowledge, then no, it's just justified true belief, and the question is what constitutes justification. Right. And you have like twenty five hundred years of debate about that. Uh, and it's a really interesting and important discussion to have. But if you want to talk about what's happening to us as knowing creatures on the web, then it's got to, I think. It, it, you need to, do, to expand that discussion beyond um, the, the narrow definition of knowledge to a broader one in which the justification may be less, may be looser, but the importance of the knowledge is greater because it's stuff that matters to us. Hmm. Do you think the web is changing what matters to us or just our awareness of what matters to us? Well, everything changes what matters to us. So that, that's the simple answer, but it doesn't help anything. So um, the, the, I, I think the, the question I find, one of the places where my optimism starts to get, uh, starts to abrade is um, whether, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to back up a step. Okay. Oh, and this is going to be pretty highfalutin. Okay, here we go. Do it. Okay. Ready? Drum roll. And Bow. Falute. Okay. Um, 
The, the fundamental um, sort of motion of being a moral creature. So yeah, I told you this is you know this is where I am here. Um, is you have to recognize not only that there are other people and they have it that they they count, um, but that they live in a world and the world appears different to them, and it matters to them. So they care about what happens to them. They care about what the world is. And it matters to each person differently. And this is a, a very um, – everybody who isn't a sociopath gets this, although obviously they don't put it exactly the way I just did. But this is a very commonsensical thing. If you don't realize that the world matters differently to other people but it still matters to them, then you are a sociopath. And we're not. Okay. So, um, so here we have a – here we have an infrastructure in which – um, I link to you because I want the people who are reading me to see what, how the world matters to you. You've just posted something on your blog or you've tweeted whatever. Doesn't you know that doesn't matter? But I'm linking to it because in that in the things I'm pointing to, you've shown how the world matters to you in some way. And maybe it's a joke or it's an insight or it's a long John Battelle article that's insightful or whatever. But there it is. So we have an infrastructure that is so fundamentally well-matched to the most basic um, infrastructure of morality that the, op the optimist in me says, fantastic, we should now all become more empathetic and moral creatures. But the realist in me looks out and says, on the other hand, we can really blow this opportunity. It's really easy, and we see this all the time. You see a, a bullying, you know, to take... That example again, and so the fact that we have this infrastructure, but it doesn't necessarily uh, make us uh, use it, doesn't make us better. That's really concerning. We don't have any excuse now. <laughs> you know, we we can see directly how the world matters to other people, and if we choose not to, then it's you know it's really our fault. Right. Huh. So, so the act of linking is in, is inherently and fundamentally. A, a moral act. <laughs> I, like, um, I like viewing it that way. I do. Uh, yeah, so easy counterexamples, you know, where you're linking in order sure. to piss on somebody or whatever. But, but it can be. The fundamental infrastructure is to send people away from your page to yes. see how the world looks to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because it make, well, doesn't make logical sense. The perceiving something uh, intellectually doesn't. I mean, how do you activate empathy? You know, I mean, I think. I mean, is that what you're asking, or you're just saying we have sort of an an information infrastructure that makes at least intellectual empathy more likely? It doesn't. Uh, well, so I'm not trying to say it's intellectual empathy. I tend to put it intellectually because that's my failing. But it's the when you the reason people link to each other is only occasionally. For purely intellectual reasons, it's more likely because there's a funny cat picture at the other end of it or there's a great story or whatever. Um, so the, linking is not an intellectual act. Uh, it perfectly well can be, but it, it's usually not because, you know, we, it's an expression of human interest and we're interested in a whole, a whole bunch of, uh, of things. But I think you're asking exactly, you know, the, the right follow-on question, which is, if we have this infrastructure but it doesn't make us moral, then what do we do about it? And I mean, how do we use it in order to make us moral? And this, this is, um, obviously I don't know, um, and I am, but I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to say something that is so clearly um, based in my 
bias as a writer um, that you should entirely discount it. Nevertheless, um, we it, it apparently does not work to present to people a smorgasbord of important, interesting, true, moving um, articles, posts, or whatever uh, from that uh, give us a glimpse of life from around the world, how the world matters to people whose cultures and values are very different from ours. We have that, but we're not availing ourselves of them. It's very hard. It's very hard to do that because um, it's hard to empathize with people who we perceive as not being like us, the other. But those are exactly the people we need to empathize with in order to extend our moral circle. Right. Um, So, I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with this, how do we tolerate people being different? And that's the thing that led me to start performing in a much more tumbly kind of way uh, to create an environment where people could be different together. And my experience is that unless um, unless people feel themselves listened to enough, they can't, I mean, it, that it's a developmental thing. It's a psychological development thing. Um, and very few of us have really are mature developmentally, very few people. So and plus, it seems newish to me culturally that we're living in so much proximity with, with different sorts of difference anyway. I mean, we've always, there's always difference to any two people in any family are different. But um, usually responses to, you know, well, so-and-so is having this problem. You see it in the Republican debates, in fact. Here's our weekly news thing coming up. Um, it's really incredibly obvious in these Republican debates. Well, me too. What about me? Christians are oppressed uh, because there's no Christmas tree and in this news program, and so you hate us. There's a kind of, if you're not mirroring me right now, uh, then I can't look at you. And that's because I think people's sense of self are off, is often not very strong, uh, which is, a, to me, a developmental thing. It's, you know, and people need massive amounts of mirroring to develop. I don't know. That's, I mean, that's my kind of abstract way of putting a thing. So when I'm performing and trying to link all these people, I'm doing insane amounts of mirroring everybody to get them to do this thing together, right? And that's why the feedback, mech, to me, one of the things that's so incredibly powerful about the web and that I'm interested in writing about more and with is, is that it lets people have tons of feedback. That's why we're such little gerbils for our little pellets. <laughs> that's what makes you know YouTube have the possibility of being a little different than television is that there might, you, there, you might get one person to see the thing you put up there and might actually get what you're saying and, see, and let you know that they see you. And that that would be quite different. And that's actually developmentally helpful. That's my sense of the thing. I don't know if any of this makes any sense to you because I don't know if this is, I don't know, think this is how you approach looking at, you know, this massive growing body of knowledge and how we wrap our hands around it and how we work with the living in this networked world. But that's, that's what's occurred to me anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It's a sign of the, of the richness of the, uh, of the topic of, of what's happening that um, fu- fundamentally different approaches all have uh, sort of coherent insights into it. So, no, I'm, I'm not a developmental psychologist sort of person, but I recognize that what uh, the importance of what you've just said, and I'm sure that's a component of it. Uh, there are components of it in every along every axis that we have. There's an economic component. There's a, a gender and, and, and a race component. There's there's com- every slice through this internet thing is going to provide insight. So, yeah. Um, so as a writer, my response is, um, you know what we need to do? We need to, People won't read the stuff that they should read. 
they read things that they're interested in and making people interested in things they didn't know they were interested in. That's yeah. what writers do. That's what writing is about. Yes. Now, wh- now yes. what makes a writer want to do that? Oh, who knows? Uh, you know, um, hmm. uh, you know well, why, uh, I don't know. What? Well, uh, sorry. Um, something you said, I think, in 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 small pieces, um, was that if you raise someone without connecting to other people, they 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 are effectively subhuman. They they're unable to speak. They're unable to interact with anyone. Um, then they're missing all the connections. Which Chris Matt so exactly what Heather was saying about mirroring, um, and you know the hope is that the internet can provide the sort of extra mirroring and extra viewpoints that we need to. Um, expand our humanity rather than getting us to go back and just look at the same things over and over again. And that, that's the sort of the, the tension of it. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not, so, you know, mirror, the little I know about, uh, about um, mirror cells and mirror neurons yeah. help, seems to provide a biological basis for something that we um, already knew was true but now it's good to it's good to be able to point to, to a mechanism yeah um so, and by the way um yochai benkler's book the penguin and the leviathan really for anybody who needs an argument that humans are collaborative and social and cooperative he has he has a very readable book um that came out a few months ago about that. It's it's really good for me. It's I'm really glad that he wrote it. But the th- the depressing thing about it is that we actually need a book. You know, the people need to be convinced of this, and and there are people who need to be convinced that humans are social yeah. and collaborative and cooperative. Well, I mean, you know, there's a big libertarian streak in California, and one take on kind of libertarianism, especially in the in the tech business, is that you know I, you can do everything alone. Yeah, you know, that's always bothered me that about, especially sort of Ayn Randian libertarians, is that they quite explicitly deny the existence of the social layer because it doesn't reduce to, because it's invisible. It's not a physical thing. And uh, that just seems to me to be wrong. To me, the easiest way to refute that is like, if you liked reading Atlas Shrugged, it kind of proves how social you are because you were so excited to have someone else describe a thing you liked about yourself. Wasn't that fun? Oh, but that's a weakness. You're weak. You, need, <laughs> you, you like someone else you, telling you that they agree with you. Well, that's because you're weak, because you need approval from other people. I mean, come on. Grow a pair, will you? Come on. Right. Yeah, Heather, grow a pair, would you? Yeah. So, yeah. I'll tell you the other th- problem I have li- with libertarianism. Um, yes. Oh, God, why? Okay, so. Um, <laughs> we'll give you four minutes on libertarianism, and then we're going back to knowledge, but do it. Do it. Oh, okay. I'll, um because who isn't? I mean, is there? I don't want to be. Is there anyone in this room right now, in this chat room, who's really into this stuff? Identify yourself and tell us, you know, because then we can have a real debate with someone who believes it. Because I don't believe that in Rand stuff. I can't believe anyone believes it. I, it's um, it taps yeah. into a certain influence. Okay. Can go, David. Weinberger. David. David and first, Rand, and then I'll respond to it. Because you must deal with people arguing this stuff to you all the time. Well, not with me. I. Um, Go ahead, rant away on libertarians. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, so uh, 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 part of it is that it sounds like it's a principle, but it's not. That is, so if you take the if you take the principle of libertarianism to be a, uh, we ought to have the maximum amount of individual freedom, 
which, you know, if that's not the right definition, then we can stop right there. But if that's one of the core beliefs, then that sounds like a principle, but it's something that everybody believes. And so it, it has no functional role. It's, it's sort of like a, a no-op. It's a, it doesn't do anything. I believe we should have max, each person should have the maximum amount of freedom. But I disagree with, with, every, with libertarians who say people ought to have the maximum. We disagree about what maximum means. And so it doesn't give you a principle by which you can actually decide anything. And the second problem I'll point to really quickly just to get myself in, um, in more trouble um, is that uh, I'll just take Ron Paul for the moment. When Ron Paul's, uh, Ron Paul's positions seem to me they're, they're, they're principled, which is, you know, in some sense great, I guess, but they're so principled that they deny reality. So when he says it's a matter of states' rights, that uh, states ought to be able to decide about a woman's right to choose an abortion, that's sure, I guess there's some principle on which that makes sense, although why, you know, that and not other, but that's fine, good principle, but it ignores the practical reality, which is there's going to be a whole bunch of poor people who can, can't, poor women who simply cannot get abortions. That fact to me is way, way, way more important than the preservation of some principle for principled reasons. I am, as they say in the philosophy biz, I am not a deontologist. I, I don't believe in, I used to be, but I no longer believe that support that principles by themselves really help very much when it comes to moral action. I, I much prefer reality. So, okay, so, so, uh, let me be the uh, oh. somewhat defender of libertarianism. Um, I'm not going to defend Rand. Um, I'm going to start from, from Hayek. Um, and the, the, Which the Hayek? Stuff, uh, Friedrich Hayek. Um, Friedrich Thank you. Von Hayek, um, who, his, his point and his um, insight was that, was, is very similar to yours in that he said that there are things, there are orders that are spontaneous and not top-down, that you see in um, that you see in nature, and one of the key examples of this is is the marketplace, um, because the 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 price of goods in a market is um, not something that's decreed, but is um, established by what people want to want to buy, what to pay for it, and buy and sell for it. Um, and there is, the, and you know, then there's a bunch of other great examples of this as well, like. Um, Language is an example of an emergent order. It is not decreed from the top, whatever the French may think. Um, it is something that we adapt and evolve each day, and, and it grows by agreement over time. Um, but it is, you know, th there are these spontaneous orders that, that are constructed from the world by, by people um, moving stuff back and forth at the bottom that, that create this emergent order, um, and that if you try and organize them in a top-down way, that, that, that they will fail. Now, the sort of naive libertarianism says um, spontaneous orders are good. The market is a spontaneous order. Therefore, all things should be markets. And that misses that there are many other spontaneous orders, too. And the web has made a lot of the, many, many more of these things manifest. If you read like too. four minutes of like Foucault, you won't think that anything's 100 percent spontaneous. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's spontaneous within the power system we all live in. Um... Okay. Yeah. No. They, you know, these things have more in common than, than you know than, than they might seem. I was saying what 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 Rand did was take some of that stuff um, and then wrapped it up in sort of in grouping and out grouping and a whole bunch of like oh you're either one of us or you're not bullshit which 
um, is 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 one of those like superficially attractive things that that, that everyone does. Um, and basically, but wasn't she also? Who, but wasn't sorry? I just wanted to ask Kevin because I'm no Rand expert. Wasn't she also reacting to communism and socialism? Yes. Yes. So to put, so she to put from the from the Russian Revolution. Right. Isn't she also family. reacting to her serious kink bottom tendencies because it's all over her yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's like all of it. Life and what I want, therefore everything is this way. Anyway, I just have to pour well, sex into every conversation. Yes. Uh, why not? So David. Okay. Do we still have you? Did we lose you? Oh no, I'm I'm. I'm listening. Right. Just took a moment to be in the chat room. Hi, and Foucault. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm. So we're getting uh, Andrew's disagreeing with us. <laughs> you, Clay Shirky is the Foucault of the internet. That's an, a wonderful statement. So why why do you think he's? I, we're staying with you on these thinkers, and do you, I, know, I don't know if we're getting enough into too big to know, but uh, which I want to. I'm going to want more time with you. Why do you think? Clay is the Foucault of the internet. And why do you think Foucault has something to, to add to this? Because, I mean, I'll take, I don't know what Andrew's argument is, but he doesn't, uh, no, I'm saying, like, Andrew, what is it that, that you don't like about Foucault? Why do you think he's a crock? And David, since we can hear you, why why do you think Foucault is amazing? And Shirk, Clay Shirky, who's going to be with us in episode 100, is the Foucault of the internet? <laughs> so, um I, uh, Foucault is, is an incredible uh, example of an expert, of somebody who knows just so much that he's able or she to see things that we just can't. The, uh, in the history of thought, um, his understanding of the history of thought is just so profound, and his, his um, knowledge of the sources and et cetera. So there's that. Um, but also the, oh, I don't know, the, I actually like what, your use of him, your invocation of him here as a, a very subtle thinker um, who is aware of the, um, the sort of power dynamics uh, that um, cut through or, or pervade all of our all of our thinking and our behavior, and that's really important um, to keep in mind as well. Um, the fact, the de- I hate to use the word, but sort of the deconstruction of institutions and showing that they, even though they look like they're the same thing throughout the ages, but are profoundly different, is is epically important. And he he, he nailed it. Um, Clay is the Foucault of the internet, which I put in parentheses because I, you know, I'm not sure how literally I want this taken, but I think that when um, in you know, 20, 30 years, when people look back at the um, the tumult of thought about the internet, they're going to be paying a special attention to Clay. So, so this is a, this is a great point. Andrew Hazlitt is saying he doesn't believe he's our esteemed producer uh, and very wide read uh, thinker himself, that knowledge is not just an expression of power and your new book, too big to know. And let, let me, let's give the full name because It's so great. Too big to know. Oh and uh, cause there's no, in a world where there's, Facts aren't the facts. Everyone's an expert, and the room is the smartest person in the room. I think I got it right. You did. You nailed it. it and part of what I like about that title, by the way, when I was explaining this to someone yesterday, I'm like, look how big the subhead is on this thing to explain <laughs> what we talk about on this podcast every week. And that's why we came up with the freaking word using tumble because it's hard to concept, concisely say, here's what it is to deal with all these things that are so now. Right? 
How are you dealing with what is a fact? How do you know something? How are people connected to one another? Where do you go for a sense of authority? How do you make things move? So we're saying tumbling because it is a practice that exists based in reality. I've done it lots in shows. It works. Uh, and people do it all the time. It's just not terribly recognized. So that's the thing that makes me open to Foucault's. I'm a big fan, Andrew, of things that don't seem so obvious when you look at what the conventional wisdom is. And I guess maybe part of what you're not liking is that now in certain academic circles, Foucault becomes a kind of conventional wisdom because he's so studied. But in the context, David Weinberger, of knowledge and studying the study of knowledge now and how we're trying to grapple with that, how is it that... um, That, do you think knowledge is not just an expression of power? What do you think about Andrew's assertion? There's just a sort of something that's knowable, and it, it is what it is. I'm guessing that's what Andrew is after. It's not just, you know, expressing the dynamics of power of the world. It's not, it's not just expressing, but there is a power dynamic. and you, you can't look at the history of knowledge and how it's been wielded without, without seeing that. I mean, uh, you can't look at it without seeing a gender component, but that's not to say that it reduces to nothing but gender. And so... Right. Your comment was in response to Kevin's evocation, invocation of the free market, which, by the way, you don't have to be a libertarian to, to support. Um, okay. And I think it was a proper invocation. Yeah, it's not entirely a free market. There's a whole depth of, of their currents underneath it that need to be considered. Just that it's not spontaneously coming out of the ground, like that there's a yeah. thing that, it, that, it, that it's shaping it in part that's, that it's, that's part of it. That's all. Mm, well, it's not coming out of the ground, but it's coming out of humans. I think that it comes when people um, interact with each other. You, you do trading is, is one, of the, one of the natural behaviors. But there's lots of other there natural of, behaviors. I'm, I'm not saying it's the only natural behavior. Right, right, right. We, you know, we've got to... it's a, it's a, but it's it's also contingent on all these other things happening. You know, that's my take on the thing with David. So, David, how do we deal with this knowledge-based uh, networked world where things have all these layers to them? They are expression of power, and it's where we go to get our information because maybe we choose to think or hold less in our minds because we have the net. No, uh, well, go ahead. Oh, me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you. Uh, well, I'm going to say something really uh, obvious because we all do it, which is we find a group of people. It's either um, permanent or semi-permanent uh, recurring group or it's an evanescent group or uh, and we explore and engage and we get multiple um, sides to the argument. And we do this all the time when, when we're trying to figure out what to buy or how to you know, what's the right uh, knitting stitch or what the FCC's policy should be. Whatever it is, we locate these these webs, these nodes that have people in them who are often fiercely smart, um, lots of different uh, differences, and yet same enough that they're able to talk together. This is the problem I have with conceptualizing the echo chamber argument, by the way. I mean, you need so much sameness to have a good conversation, but nevertheless, you want, there's some difference, some disagreement, sometimes it's heated. We find these, and for topics that we care about, we basically live in them. You know, I've been in some mailing lists for like 15 years and have learned, I've got an entire education in in some fields because of these. Deb? Yeah, I, yeah. I have a question for that, David. So, I, you know, obviously, we're all probably in violent agreement on flow and linking and knowledge and everything that you just described. Sort of, you find the people, and you just it just scales and it happens. Is is you know? Do you have any point of view on what the new you know the old systems don't really work? They're not a good human reflection, right? We think tumblers and designing for tumblers are going to be sort of a future 
big role. But can can we get shit done in this world where it's all sort of emergent and things are connected? We can philosophize, share ideas. That goes without saying. But, you know, we've talked a, you know, a couple of weeks ago in, in the past, like, how people jump on either Occupy Wall Street or, you know, Arab Spring that, you know, sort of it reaches this point and then it's like, okay, so how do you get stuff done? You know, have you delved into that in Too Big to Know in any way or do you have a point of view on, on sort of what the new infrastructures are if oh, they're well. so emergent? Can uh, you get – like how do you, how do you organize and get shit done in a world that's always flowing? Okay, so Too Big to Know – uh, the only thing that gets done the only is, is knowledge. That's the only question. Right. But can you get shit done? Oh my God! Have you not looked at the shit? Uh, you know, I we we can do. It's a bit rhetorical <laughs> question, so you know that. Yeah, bigger. Yeah. Um, we can do. We have done a lolcat translation of the Bible. So yeah, we can get shit done. <laughs> so how come sometimes you know existing organizations or infrastructures or. Maybe they're just rant, you know ranting against the new infrastructures. People will always say, "Are, are things happening? Are they, how are they things getting done?" You know, my point of view is that they're getting done so differently and so fluidly that it may, that it makes people sort of uncomfortable. There's no hierarchy and command and control. People don't know where to go. But, this, is the, this is this is the, like the central lesson. Of, I mean, I know you know it, but it's always surprising to me that people need to be. Um, convinced of this because it's the central lesson of the web and it's it's the big most maybe the most non-intuitive thing about the web which is you take away the centralized control and we get massive amounts of shit done we get shit done that we never even contemplated getting done like building a 3.8 million entry encyclopedia that's actually pretty damn good building uh, Arab Spring we got done without a centralized leadership thing. And I say we, you know, sort of yeah. not including myself. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the loose-edged environment that software developers have created for themselves for learning, for getting questions answered and bugs found, um, it, it's so wildly decentralized that even though you can point to some sites, uh, important sites, it's really the ecology that is enabling this massive public learning to occur. Yeah, we got that done. We built maybe the most rapid learning environment in human history without – and it's so decentralized in its building, we don't even have a place to point at it like we do with Wikipedia or um, the Lolcat Bible. So, yeah, this is the, maybe the most – not we are so we've been so convinced that the right way to get things done, the only way to get big projects the done only. is to manage them, that the discovery that management does not scale, um, that if you right. really want to get big things done, you've got to get the management and the control out of it. Control does not scale. Right. It also gives you a headache. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, lately for well, me getting but, on a plane. But yeah. But the other thing is that um, this lesson was, was not obvious to the programmers to begin with either. And by default, they built hierarchical structures too. And one of the sort of big sea changes in the last few years has been the change from even the open source projects were hierarchically organized. They had a benign dictator who would decide who, what got checked in and what didn't. Uh, but now we have the sort of GitHub worldview where every, anyone can, can make any variation on the theme and, and suggest it back as a as a thing, and they all exist in parallel and all possibilities are there. Um, and that is, you know, that's one of these sort of cutting the hierarchy out of the, the assumption is actually quite hard um, because we, it, it's, it's, an, it's an easy default organization that we've been trained in a lot um, by the sort of classical 
epistemological models that, that were based on books and things. I, you know, it's a, wonder, it's a wonderful point. I think it's exactly right. Oh, we did, we have not yet fully explored. That's like explored. such a big point. I want to slow that down to see if it can say, like, I'm letting that sink in. So you're saying, Kevin, that the way coders were thinking was based on an epistemological, and what is, can you can you spell that out for those of us who didn't get the beautiful well, this, British this, this education is, you have, and their understanding of how things work that they got from reading books? Is well, this is, this is, this is um, David's point from Everything is Miscellaneous, which is that... Um, when all knowledge was in books, um, each book, each in a library could only be in one place at a time, so you had to decide what its topic was to decide where to shelve it. Whereas now... It couldn't you be can, you multiple could, things at once. It couldn't be in multiple places at once unless you bought multiple copies, or you put little slips on the shelf saying, go and look here too. Um, and that was very, very messy. Whereas in a, in a linked world, things can be in many places at once, in effect, because we can connect them together. And the links, the sort of the weight of the links soon outweighs the the structure you're trying to impose. And this is, you know, in, in a sense, that's why Google beat Yahoo, because Yahoo was trying to build a hierarchy of organization for the web by hand. And Google said, well, let's just count the links and see what, what's interesting and has that word. And what's going to beat that is somebody who doesn't even worry about counting the links, I presume. Um, well, what's, what the, the, the thing that we've got now is that there are now so many people on the web, um, you can ask the people as well. Uh, and it's, it's, it's getting easier to ask people um, before you ask Google or, or after you ask Google and it fails. Well, but also because Google's gameable and people are less gameable than Google. Yeah, to some extent. People, people are the people who game Google. So it's, there, is a, there is this sort of weird thing going on where more and more of the web is written by robots for robots. Um, because oh, God, that's so true and so depressing. Because people are yeah, generating yeah. lots and lots of pages that are designed to rank well for Google searches, um, and and the the original intent of Google was to find the things that people were linking to and emphasize the ones that were linked to the most. And the problem is that now most of the links are made by robots, and most of the text is made by robots to try and fool other robots. Um, and we're in the middle going, ah, but this is most crap. This is why I say this tumbling stuff matters, because yes, the rest of this shit is going to be done by machines, people. If you want some job security, stop trying to do a machine's job. I don't know. That's my rant, David. That's a good rant. Okay. David, so much to ask you. Too big to know. Um, wh- when did you start first start feeling overwhelmed by information? I listen. That's an assumption. I assumed that you. Yeah, I felt. I feel overwhelmed by work. I feel overwhelmed by um, the things that I need to do in my life. I don't feel overwhelmed by information. For that, I guess you'd have to pay more attention. So, not paying attention is your technique. Oh yeah. (laughs) Also, uh, memory loss is fantastic in this regard. So too perfect. Do you recommend it? <laughs> I, I'm going to say yes, because otherwise I'm going to be depressed. Best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not sure why uh, I don't feel overwhelmed. I, I'm constantly, uh, put a, maybe that's not quite true. So I, I have long recognized that I am, I'm not going to know everything that I need to know. I've been really fortunate in my life and being surrounded by people who are so immeasurably smarter than I am that it's not even, you know, you don't even, you don't measure yourself and you don't 
bemoan the fact that you don't, you can't know what they know because you just can't. it's like saying oh, I can't I can't jump eight feet I can't dunk I mean that's just the way it is and so I, I've never really felt overwhelmed by by information I've just known there's you know it's you're human you're stuck that's it yes. Well, that, but that's, I mean, but part of the value Wait, but is... You know what that really relates, but... you know, oops, Sorry, Kevin. Yeah. I was just going to say that exactly relates to management doesn't scale. Because you realize and control, you can't control it all. So just go with the flow and there's information everywhere. And what you retain, you retain. And what you don't, you don't. <laughs> right? Yep. And as you get older, you write more and more sticky notes to yourself to remember what it was you were about to do. And that's, and the way that's it is. okay. That's okay. Yes. Sorry, Kevin. Go ahead. But that's what I'm saying. That we, you know, we're we're augmented humans because we um, we can use the Google to find the things that we used to have to remember, and that that's as you say, it's very freeing. It's like I don't have to remember how I drive from A to B anymore because I can ask the machine, which means I can I can fill my memory with other stuff, hopefully, and hopefully it'll be useful stuff rather than um, things that that are less that are less valuable that are just piling up because I wasn't actually making the effort to remember them. Yeah, I, which, yes, which we have always done. It is the course of human success that we've externalized these mental functions highly usefully. And every time we do it, we worry that we are becoming less human or yes. more dependent on our technology. We did that with writing and we're doing it again with the Internet. And sure, there are things to worry about. Um, I'll give you one. But overall, it's such a huge benefit not to have to... Um, uh, to not to have to remember everything. The the problem is that well, you know, in certain areas of expertise, you actually do have to remember a whole bunch of stuff so you can synthesize it. But I've seen no evidence that within a field, if you're a chemist, the chemists are not remembering what the, the atomic weights are or whatever it is that they need to know because they have Google. Uh, that would be a problem, but I haven't heard about that problem yet. So. Uh, so is the, if the web, if Facebook, you know, takes over more and more of people's time online and apps, individual apps rise and things are less linkable and searchable, what do you think that will do to our understanding of knowledge? And will it, you know, do you, do you think having a less linked world is going to change your optimism about us, you know, figuring out what everybody wants, the things you like about this networked world? Well, it depends how it goes. So, I mean, there's there, there are paths in which... We managed to lock down everything and we're back where we were, maybe even a little worse off. Um, I, I think it's unlikely we're going to manage to lock down anything, that, uh, everything. So, um, so particularly in some, some fields, I think uh, open access is, for example, is very likely to continue to push ahead in some of the sciences and some of the uh, humanities. And that will open up a lot of information. I think big data is, is probably here to stay. Um, but yeah, every time you you lock down a source, you know, a little bit of knowledge dies. Mm. <laughs> That's bad. Oh, what do you want? It's uh, true. What do you most want to be the impact of, this, of your book of your latest book? If uh, you have, if you have such a thing. Uh, of two big, uh, it doesn't matter which one. I, I don't have an answer for that. You know, uh, I hope people make it through to the end. Don't hate me. That's about it. What did you learn writing it? Well, that's 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 the fun part of writing. I mean, I've always because I, I've always defined 
myself as a writer. I wasn't willing to say that until I was 50, but I always thought of myself primarily as a struggling writer. Uh, I, I think primarily by writing. Um, and so being able to think, to have the luxury of being able to work for a couple of years, um, writing down ideas and seeing how they fit together, uh, that's, that to me is a, that's a real um, privilege and it means that the process of writing is identical to the process of learning. So basically learn everything I'm, uh, you know, the, I'm writing about. A really unhelpful answer. I don't know. <laughs> it's very humble. So if uh, if Clay I didn't think so, but okay. <laughs> Shirky is the Foucault of the internet. What? Are, who are you? Uh, I'm a writer. Uh, you know, Joe the plumber of the internet. <laughs> New humble. Uh, Joe, I, first of all, I don't don't think. Humility was a characteristic of Joe the Plumber, so... <laughs> ah, accurate. Well, yeah, he was representation of supposed... Average. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Um, any, anything that you want... <laughs> that you, for whatever reason... like, do, Okay, we haven't actually gone into the... What do you think of this word, tumbling? Give us your give us your uh, your take. I mean, we thought there was a need to describe how people are keeping conversations going and managing in a network system. Did have you you've read and thought a lot about this stuff more than most people? Have you, you got other phrases or words you've liked that have worked for you? Oh, you know, I, none actually as good. I mean, so I, there's the set of sort of chaos words and loose connection words, and I have nothing, you know, um, no. But I do like tumble to me has uh, a, you know, a a rich set of uh, and I love the word tumble actually uh, I was really pleased that you took it up it has um, the, the resonances for me are exactly right including and especially the the humor I, you know did you ever get to see Woody Allen uh, do stand up in person uh, no nope. Did you ever? I'll, just tell, you, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. So this is the whole Woody Allen thing is, is sort of. Um, I, I did. I wrote. I wrote gags every night yeah. for his comic strip, and which is this. Uh, you know, it's it ceases. It becomes fairly mechanical process at the time. But he he edited it, so that was that was good. I get gags back from Woody Allen, and that was you know corrected, made funny. That was that was pretty good. So one of the two times that I've met him. Um, was he he had a screening of Annie Hall and at, at NYU before it was released and uh, I went to see it. He invited me to see it and I was brought back to see him afterwards and he asked me how I liked it and I said, eh, eh, not, you know, it was okay. It wasn't great. I couldn't tell who to like in it. And um, so my, my critical comment to Woody Allen was, eh, it was okay. And a few months later, he had won seven Academy Awards for it. And so... Um, <laughs> Uh, Woody Allen did not uh, consult me again about his uh, about his <laughs> movies. So. And working for and gags for him, what was the algorithm he used? Like, what was his structure of joke telling? Wow, th what a great question! Because it turns out the reason I got this this job was that I had I was doing freelance writing, and as I say, a bunch of it was humor, and I was, you know because I like writing, and because I was a graduate student, I wanted I needed money, and so I had. I was a big Woody Allen fan before he turned evil and, and really loved his movies and then started getting tired of his movies because it seemed to me that there were, I think, four Woody Allen joke patterns. And I no longer remember what they were, but there are things like um, 
something mundane juxtaposed with something cosmic. So one of his jokes is, not only is there no God, try to get a plumber on Sundays. Right. And, and these patterns became apparent to me. So I generated a parody. I wrote 50 Woody Allen jokes, um, at just a list, in which these patterns became apparent because they were pretty repetitive. Um, and I failed to get it um, published anywhere, but one of the editors said I should send it to his agent, which I did. And I got a call almost immediately because they I happened to send it in at the very moment that they were looking for a gag writer to, to, <laughs> for the strip. Um, and so almost all of those 50 parody jokes eventually got used in, in the strip. <laughs> right. And what's, what's, what's the other famous gag he has about uh, I was thrown out of my, my philosophy class in NYU – I looked into the soul of the girl next to me or something for looking yeah. into the soul. Like, again, like I'm looking into the soul of the girl next to me. Like, exa- you, you got on, you hit it on the, on the head. It's true. Most, a lot of comics, I mean, mainstream, I think most stand up has pretty algorithmic pretty often. Which is, again, why I want to do more improvisational stuff and start involving the audience because I felt like I will know, you know, I always feel like when I see a lot of, like, I love comedy, but you, you start to know pretty fast what someone's going to say, at least to me. I mean, the great Woody Allen uh, monologues were not a series of wisecracks. They were they were stories, um, right, you know, story. like twenty minute yeah. stories that would build. And so he didn't moose? suffer from that there. But um, the moose, exactly, yeah. The moose. I was thinking of the moose also. It's a it's great so freaking story. It's the best story. It's a great story. I mean, it, but he also makes something seem so important that's not. That's also part of the, the cosmicness. Do you still do you still try to write comedy? Did it start boring you after a point, David? Well, gag writing um, does because the algorithm, the heuristic there is that you think of a, a premise um, and then try to do you know like an entire five strips based on it. You know, Woody's getting a haircut, but the haircutter has, has a hook for a hand. Hey, oh, you know, there's five days right there. So that does get a little uh, mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I like humor. You like humor. Who do you like now? Besides Woody Allen, uh, yeah, no. The, so the right, I know the hip answer is Louis C.K. And I have to say that. No, so, forget that. I, I want no. It's personally true to you. I could no, no. That. I refuse to do that. Uh, anyway, yeah. You refuse um, to tell me what you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have trouble um, answering questions like that because I have trouble um, processing lists mentally. Um, no, I'm just I know that. Is anybody you, you you regularly watch or read now? Yeah. If you don't, then you don't. I, oh, John Stewart. I mean, can I get any more? Didn't we start off with the stereotype of uh, I must live in Brookline? I like John yeah. Stewart. I'm a Brook, Brookline Jew. Who else am I going to write uh, like? Stewart, he's funny. He is funny, and he seems like a lovely guy. Just like you, David Weinberger, I want, we're going to try to get closer to an hour show, so we're going to wrap up right now. And if you want us to crown it, we have a huge chat room. Of people dying. We want to get more into, into Ayn Rand with and Foucault with David Weinberger and Andrew Hazlitt. How, you know, just what business needs, more philosophy. Why, why do you think business should pay attention to this stuff, David? Let's go out with that. Or should it? Because, it because, of bus- because business needs to deal with a scaled world. I mean, if, if they want to know stuff and make good decisions, they've got to deal with the, the availability of massive amounts of of data and with massively connected networks because that's where knowledge is. How about that? That's fantastic. And because they'll make money, they'll be rich, I tell you. 
Yes, and your problems will be over. Life will be perfect. You'll never have enough to think. You can pay people to think for you. Just have a robot. Uh, I want to thank David Weinberg. Fantastic. I would come, would you come back? I hope you would because I feel like we have like 80,000 more things to ask you. <laughs> I, I would do anything to get to hang out with you in your chat room. So absolutely. Isn't it a great bunch of people? I want to thank Images and Cozy and um, Dorian Taylor, of course. What's wonderful is people guests on the show, like Dorian coming back and being here. Sometimes Amber Case comes, Tom Fallis Krebs, uh, Terrell Russell, all kinds of great people. It's an incredibly smart, uh, interesting group of people that we learn a lot from. And I can't wait till we can afford to have a technology system where we can hear you all in the show, <laughs> literally hear your voices. I want to thank our host, uh, Domain host Hover, and uh, who is also our sponsor, and recommend them in case you need a place to host your domains or transfer them to. You can use the code TUMMEL, T-O-M-M-E-L, for a little bit off of your domain hosting costs and supporting our show that way. Kevin, is there anything you want to let people know this week? Anything going on? Nope, no, nothing comes to mind. And Deb, how about you? Actually, I'm, I have a call to action based on what we're talking about in our chat room. Uh, Todd just pointed out that the Wikipedia page for the word Tummel needs a lot of work. So in honor of David Weinberger and information scaling, if anyone wants to go in there and start hacking on that Tummel page, let's have at it and add more to it. Awesome. It, you know, Wikipedia, all of us. I don't think, I don't know. Are you Wikipedia'd? I'm not Wikipedia'd. You're not Wikipedia'd? No. No, no I'm not Wikipedia'd. I definitely don't either. exist, so look out. Maybe we should start a separate Wikipedia of like Gynopedia, just so, like, yes, and also yeah. exist on the internet. Yeah. Thank you. No, I'm, um, Kevin has a page. I have a page. We all, you, you should, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. David, you've been just fantastic. I really want to thank you again. I've got a workshop uh, and presenting. If you want to know how to do this kind of flowy stuff in person, in meetings and pitches and presentations, that please, if you take this, you can learn to make not like a boring slide presentation, but this great, engaged, conversational uh, dynamic in the room, which makes presentations so much more fun and you stay so much more interested. It's a uh, February 11th is the next one in San Francisco. If you want to bring me to your city, just let me know or go on Facebook and start a page. There are a few in other cities there. It's unpresenting.com. So thanks, everybody. It's been great. We're going to stick around and have a little post-show chat. And we'll be back uh, next week with Christy next week. Canada. No, Christy's in a couple weeks. And we've got episode 100 Clay Shirky coming up. So definitely show up next month for that. Uh, We'll see you all next week. Good night. And... uh, have a good, how do you sign off with people? I don't have a rule. I'm going to be the tumble first. out. Sign. Tumble out. <laughs> yeah. good I've be- been saying tumble out when you're not around. All right. Good night. <laughs> I feel. I feel. I've been trying Seacrest out, but my children hate it when I do that. So yeah. <laughs> we need the eggs. We need the eggs. Okay. Night. Nice. Got it. That's good.